Welcome to The Turning Point, a podcast for any and all of us who are interested in education in sub-Saharan Africa. This podcast, we'll be speaking with leaders, teachers and educators from all walks of life, but all of whom have a keen interest in the preparation of our next generations for an exciting future on the African continent. If you're interested in Africa taking its rightful place on the global education stage, or indeed simply interested in having a small window into this crucially important time in African education's history, join us on The Turning Point to hear what others have to say. In today's podcast, we welcome Anne Rowley-Morton, Principal of Pinelands North Primary School in Cape Town. Last year, Pinelands North was a finalist for the World's Best School Award in the category of Overcoming Adversity. I visited the school in October last year, and it's easy to see why they managed to progress so far in this prestigious competition. Anne has been the principal for over 20 years, and her dedication to the school and attention to building a school that her students would thrive in is evident from the moment you cross the threshold. In this conversation, we explore some of her thought processes and approaches that she's taken in building this amazing organization. Um, yeah, so hi, Anne. Hi, Andy. Thanks very much hi. for joining us on uh, on the Turning Point podcast. And it's great to have you both here because it's, as I've mentioned before, my visit around Pinelands was uh, was really eye-opening, but also really inspiring and uh, and very sort of insightful into the world of education in, um, you know, in a South African school, but also one of the world's best schools uh, finalists or contenders. So yeah, thanks for joining us, Anne. And, uh, and Andy as well, who's obviously a colleague of, of mine or of ours at, at Ubuntu. So for start, um, the first thing I noticed when walking around uh, Pines was just what a happy school it was. And um, Anne, I wanted to just explore a little bit about uh, the sort of environmental factors that made it like this and, and, and which environmental factors you feel are, are sort of important for learning um, you know, and, and has this been something that you've always strived after? Um, I think it's, so I've been a principal for 26 years at the same school. And so that's given me a long journey in which to look at all the different facets. But when I um, first thought about that, for me, it's actually the one of the most important things um, in the difference between most schools in the UK is um, the comfortable uniform. Um, comfortable clothing that that children and adults are in all day. I don't know if you noticed that some of our children are barefoot, um, yeah. and um, and our staff too. The principals oh. usually barefoot too, um, and so we feel that it. You know, the the we used to have a colonial uniform with um, white shirts, ties, um, girls in little pinafore dresses. Um, but because we also on a gender of di a, a diversity and gender um, tangent as well, that um, when we made the T-shirts and shorts uniform with no shoes or shoes if you wanted them, um, it, it meant that um, children weren't defined by their gender uniform. Mm. Um, and so they were comfortable to be who they were. Um, also, you will have seen that we have lots of safe spaces around the school. Um, yeah. And and so we created 
um, as we're still doing that, but we've got a Mandela Peace Garden and the Quiet Quad and Bexar oh, and animals are. And um, and now we're creating, I'm sure the Kira showed you the, our Elmer space. And each one of those um, is creates a different, warm, comforting space um, for children at different times of the day. And our libraries open from seven o'clock in the morning until four o'clock in the afternoon so that parents can come in with their children and read before school or read after school too. Children can go in there during break time to play um, little games or they can read. Um, and also you would have noticed outside my office, um, about 15 years ago, um, we started getting quite a few children who are on the autistic spectrum. And you probably know that children on the autistic spectrum stu um, struggle with social um, uh, niceties. They don't know how to make friends. They don't know what the social behaviors are that help you make friends. And so they um, they assume things that aren't the other assumptions that other children would make. And so very often children um, on the autistic spectrum would end up outside my office or my deputy's office after break because they couldn't cope with playing soccer because they couldn't work out how the, how the social dynamics of a game of soccer actually works. And so we created outside my office a place where um, smart children um, who can come and play um, logic games or we or at the moment we have a two dolls houses out there. I put a fire station there um, at different times, um, Lego. So boys and girls can go and play with toys they don't get access to at home. Um, and they don't have to play with lots of children. Um, you know, a, a grade seven child can still go and play with the doll's house, even though um, it would be not seen to be the appropriately sociable um, kind of toy that a grade seven girl might play with. I, I actually, when I was there, one of yeah, I, I was um, fascinated. There was a, a table just outside your office, which had a whole lot of kind of building blocks on it. Yes, and and one of the things I was quite struck by was that that uh, facility, if you like, was was open to whoever wanted to go and play in it, and and the, and the children are very are very um, happy to kind of go and in, in, enjoy that. Have you found that? that you see different ages of children playing together at the same time? I guess probably that could be the case. Yes. Um, so I'm laughing because um, one, in the first year that I put all those toys up there, um, we also had, we didn't have the the um, Bexaplex open with um, all the ducks there. Um, we used to hand raise ducks and, um, and the little ducklings. And we used to take them away from their moms because we were worried that they weren't going to survive. Now we've learned that, it's okay that they don't survive because that's all about life. Um, and so outside my office was this tank, open tank, with about um, eight ducklings in it. And I had a visit from about 18 school teachers from the UK. And they just about clutched because they said, um, how can you possibly have duckling, an open tank of ducklings <laughs> in the middle of a school because the children are going to kill them? Yeah. And then the, then the other thing that lots of people have said is, how can you have all these toys out there? Because children are going to steal them. But, Funny, isn't it? People's yeah. perceptions. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that the, if you teach children the right values, and that's another conversation that we should have later, we have teach children the right values right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. They do trust each other and they do learn to share. So the, my most my best story from outside my office. Um, you're talking about um, the different ages of children. 
I had a child, two ch- children with Asperger's. That's the um, gifted side of a- autistic spectrum. Um, one boy was in grade seven and the other was in grade five. And I only had one doll's house out there at the time. And it was the time um, that there was that gentleman who doesn't have legs in, without mentioning his name, in South Africa who um, on um, Valentine's Day murdered his girlfriend through the, the bathroom door. And um, so the younger boy meets me after break and says to me, Mrs. Morton, please can I put a sign on the doll's house because no one can touch the doll's house. So I said, no, but Matthew, we can't do that because this is shared toys. You know, everyone's going to have access to it. No, no, no. He says to me, Mrs. Morton, this is different. This, I mean, we're in the middle of something big. So I said, okay, Matthew, tell me what's the big thing. Now, will you, do you know that this gentleman, unnamed, um, murdered his girlfriend? And so this other older boy and I are trying to solve that murder. Okay. Yeah. So, so you know, that was when I it opened my mind to the fact that it depends on how you see a doll's house. A doll's house is for a four-year-old girl, but actually there were these um, very smart mm. older mm. boys who'd connected because they couldn't didn't connect with others over the solving of a murder case yeah. uh, using the doll's house. I think um, just listening to everything that you've described about the setting that you've got and even just that small story um about the different use of the doll's house it's it's in a lot of ways imagining what the school and the environment looks like from the child's perspective and i remember when we spoke a few months ago um that you that you placed such a lot of importance on student voice into the development of the school and i wondered whether or not so many of these uh these safe spaces and these these other beaches that you developed how many of those have come from the students themselves or, or even from the parents? Um, both. The Mandela Peace Garden was created in around um, close to our aftercare because the children said aftercare was very a very noisy place and everyone was playing soccer and whatever. But some of the girls particularly wanted to just sit calmly in a quiet space and read. So they decided they took a little section of the garden out of the garden and they put a fence um, around it and now they've called it the Mandela Peace Garden and the children can go and chill there um, because they, they wanted to. Um, also, our duck quad, the Bexaplec, is also um, managed almost completely by the junior children of the school. I have this grade three boy at the moment um, and a grade uh, three girl who um, check in with me every day that the animals are fine um, without anyone asking them to. And um, they actually came to me and said to me, um, we were holding the rabbit the other day and it looks like the rabbit might have fleas. So I told them to bring the, the rabbit to me and it did look like it. So um, I got my um, the um, staff member who manages and feeds the animals um, to put down powder. And these children, because they knew now that, um, that, that we were doing something there, created the sign that they put on the door of Bexaplec to say to the children, nobody may go in here at the moment because we're treating the animals. And then um, he came and checked in with me this last Monday and he said, um, the sign is still there. Do you think the powder is has now gone? Um, because every now and again in, in Cape Town, uh, well, in South in Africa, you know the sand is up. And um, so we just put down powder and then they go away. 
And um, so he checked in with me. And then once he real once he was told that um, the powder was fine and the animals were now fine, he took down the poster and brought it to me in my space. And he said to me, Mrs. Morton, please keep this for me for the next time that we need to do that. Now, that's just, no one told him to do that. You know, that was just his way of problem solving the world. I mean, what Andy was, um, what Andy was uh, just mentioning there as well is quite interesting because it seems to me to be quite a significant shift. It's almost like a breaking of the mold in the way that you view things. Because I know, having been educated in South Africa, I know that the system, you, you went in as a child, you went into the system, and the system determined how you should learn and how you should. And, and you're, you're very much talking from a point of view of the students as, as um, well, the student's perspective, as Andy mentioned. That sort of breaking the mold mindset, is that, that must have presented some challenges um, to you, you know, perhaps from an outside point of view or internally, whatever. Can you talk a little bit about what challenges you did face in kind of breaking that mold and choosing your own path? Well, well, I'm just laughing, giggling now because um, this year we're having another one of those challenges. Um, so during COVID, um, I know in the UK you did a similar thing. Um, we were told children weren't allowed to sit next to each other, so they had to sit one and a half meters apart, which meant that a normal classroom couldn't fit a whole class of children into them. And so anyway, long story short, the governing body decided to build a large building, um, which I think, David, you would have seen, the one out in the quad, that yeah. long white building. Yeah. Um, and um, so that long white building was built so that we could put one grade um, in there completely, which freed then some more spaces in the school so that we could divide each of our um, two classes into three classes. And then using this big space, and so the plan was afterwards that the big space would then be um, a, a secondary hall, which could be hired out for rent and dance and karate and all those kinds of things later on. Because it worked so successfully during COVID, mm. Last year, we decided, because COVID was still, at the beginning of last year, was still happening, we kept our grade seven still in the one venue. And in September, my deputy and I met with the grade seven children and said to them, we're looking at the timetable for next year. Um, we need to decide whether we can have this room back or whether you feel that this is the best space for grade seven. So we had this long conversation about what is the best thing for these children or for the next group of children. Should we go back to two classes like the rest of the school had done? Or should we just keep the big one venue? And there were pros and cons to all of them. And they said to us, actually, can we trial still using the venue? But can we, do, can we suggest some adaptions? So we then, did, we then went with their ideas. What they wanted was a carpet that they could work on. So they wanted all the desks moved close to the front so that they would be closer together and closer to the board. They wanted behind the um, desks, they wanted to have this big space where they'd have this carpet. And then the most interesting thing was that on the side, they wanted to have some tables or benches where they could do peer tutoring. Now, this came from the children because they said, what we've noticed, what we love about this big venue is that we don't look stupid when we ask questions because we know that there are lots of other children in the class who are also asking questions. We also know who the smart children are in each subject. So 
if I am stupid at maths, or we don't use those words, but let's say I don't, I'm not good at maths, I can go to Ethan, who I know is really smart at maths, and I can tap him on the shoulder, I can ask him to come to the little section where we do peer tutoring, and I can ask him to explain to me. Because maybe I can't understand the way the teacher tells it, tells it, but maybe I can understand from Ethan. And if I can't, then I can ask someone else in the class to explain to me the way they do it, because maybe that will suit my learning. And so we changed that, and then it worked unbe unbelievably well. The beginning of this year, so I feel like I've already had a whole year in a month at school, because I've had lots of challenges this year, particularly with parents, and particularly the parents of our grade sevens, who are now saying to us, we pay high school fees because you tell us that we have to have small classes um, and the smaller the classes, the higher the fees are going to be. You've now got 60 children in one space. What about my child who you telling me that you're going to give my child individual help? How can you do that in a space of 60 children? And, 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 and. And it is so, so that was the whole challenge. And, and also they had assumed things like, oh, well, because we built it during COVID, now you need to prove that it's useful. But actually, I said to them, you know, actually, we built it because we want to be able to get money out of it later on. And so next year, we probably will um, get rid of the big venue. But what we're noticing is the children, so after in the grade seven year, because the children um, are in this big space, they each individually have to take responsibility for the learning and the way they learn themselves. And they have to make it work. So you saw the um, space where I sit in the Elmer space. That's set up with a little few tables and a couple of quiet places. So last year we had some grade sevens who, if the group work got too noisy, they'd just walk in our room and say, I'm coming here to, to learn quietly. But that's such a, I mean, as an adult, some adults can't do that. So to, ta to, to take that action and say, for me to learn better, I need to do this, is such an important skill. It's, a, it's, a, it's incredible listening to the story of how you go take your own path. And whilst you, whilst you are having the courage to, to go and take the school in its own direction, you've also got the added element of involving the students so much in, in the planning of that. And you give some of that control of the direction that the school takes over to those, and and you note the um, you note the potential pitfalls, you know, politically in terms of what feedback you might get from that, and and when you and and, and regardless of all that, the school continues to go from strength to strength and and continues to be successful with with all of those challenges and that lack of that lack of sense of control in mind. What would you say to a leader who might themselves lack the courage to go in the, to take their own direction and to involve the students more in the decisions that the school makes. So next week I'm speaking to new principals and the first thing I, I was told to, I can use my own agenda. And so I'm using the seven habits. You will have seen the seven habits all around our school, David. Um, and that um, Stephen Covey thing is amazing. So we use that a lot for, and narrative learning and thinking and, and planning and time management and all that kind of thing. So um, what the first thing I wrote down um, in that is the bravery that you require. Because when I was the first prin a new principal, I wasn't brave at all. Um, I 
was scared even to tell staff members who I thought were not dressing appropriately, I would ask someone else to tell them. And once I realized, so we go back again to values. Once you realize as a leader that you hold the, the, the value of the school or the ethos of the school in your hands, and, and that therefore means that you're holding the children in your hands, and you always have to focus on the fact that the children need the best possible solution to any problem, then you become brave. Because it's then it's not about you feeling miserable or telling a staff member who then mightn't be grumpy with you, sorry, actually, this is the way we need to go. And if you don't like the fact that I speak to you um, about the, the clothing, then really, and I'm not being facetious about this, really go and find a place that you feel safe in. Because I want my children to feel safe. And if that means that I have to change your behavior or to change the way you teach, or I have to ask you not to shout at my children, or I have to ask you to do something else, then that's the important thing. And once you've done that a couple of times, you get jolly brave. And, and in fact, uh, my, in, this, in this whole thing about the grade seven venue, a whole lot of parents told me I was unapproachable because I'm, I'm a force to be reckoned with, I was told. Now, that's, that's a positive or a negative. Um, and I had took a, it took me quite a long while to kind of work out for myself, does that mean I'm a bully? Because it can be seen as that. You know, does that mean my parent? Does that mean my parents are not going to be able to speak to me? Um, but when you realize that actually, if you are fighting for right and you're fighting for the good of the children and you're fighting for the right ethos that you don't want harmed in any way, then you will make sure that you stick on the bravery path. And I suppose this. Uh... This, this comes down to two things. One thing I've mentioned, uh, I've heard you mention was values. Um, of course, basing your your whole system on on a set of values is, is very important, to, was very important to me as a principal, but also I can see how organizations that are successful um, do have a very strong set of values. Um, and the second is obviously the community, getting the community to buy into those values. Uh, and when I say community, I don't mean just the parents, but the wider community, of course, uh, the, the student body, the staff body, and everything. And it was it was very clear to me when when I walked around the school. I mean, from the moment I set foot in the school, actually, that it just felt like a values driven school. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about how you've how you've actually gone about making sure those values are properly embedded, and also how you've engaged the community so that they they all kind of buy into that set of values. So when you're a new principal, that's a very hard thing to do because you were saying that, you know, you had this ideal of getting the ideal school and then and then you realized that as a principal, you could actually make more ideal schools. So so the same thing was for me. I wanted to be a principal at, because I could influence a whole lot of children's lives. But actually, if I am successful at my work, then I'm creating teachers and principals who are going to go and do the same thing somewhere else. And so initially it's very hard because when you take over a school, you take over what's there. And what's there is the value system, the children that are there, the school families that are there, but also and mainly the staff that are there. And so then you have to work out how you are going to get the right people on the bus 
in the right places. Now, because I've been there 26 years, actually, I now know exactly who's the right person in the right place on the right bus. And I can I mean, I interviewed someone today and I, for a short-term position and I said to my head of um, learning support afterwards, she's a keeper. Um, so we need to work on the next step for, for where she's going to be joining us. But um, what, what it started off with lots of heartache because I started thinking that I was the problem. And in fact, even some of my governing body members thought that I was the problem, that I was a bully and that I was, um, I was making staff leave. Um, but actually, you realize that actually everybody has a safe place, as I said earlier. And so every, I mean, most of my staff, me- well, all my staff members were white when I took over and my, and it was in 1997. So my view and my passion for a school was that it would be reflective of South Africa. And and lots of schools haven't changed like that. They have a colored and black community of children, but all the teachers are white. And so you cannot do that because then you are just emphasizing again the hierarchy of, of who's important. And so it was about getting rid of, I mean, dare I said, getting rid of the white staff or lots of them who also were stuck in the ways of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where every child um, was the same, whether the child was the same or not, didn't matter, but you taught the child the same. Every child wore shoes, every child wore a uniform, boys wore their hair cut short um, and off their collars, girls, girls wore their hair tied up. Um, it was all about the rules of when you and I were at school, the same kind of rules as that. And so... You have to get to the point where you, so firstly, you have to work out for yourself what the ideal for you would be. And then you have to work your way progressively towards that. Um, and it's a long haul. Um, and and then even when you think that you're getting it right, then um, community changes. So so we then 10 years ago had the first transgender child who came to our school and wanted to have a, wanted to have a bathroom that she felt happy w- with going to. So that was the next step. And um, just before that, it was all about changing uniforms. So every single time time we get a new child or a new staff member with a different kind of need, it gives us another challenge to say, okay, now we need to look at our policies about that, that, and that. Um, when the, the whole thing about um, gender and hair cuts and tied up and whatever, when this child arrived and she was a boy, but she lived as a girl and she had long brown hair, I couldn't say to my community, boys must have short hair and girls must have their hair tied up when this child was a boy who had long hair and she wore her hair tied up, but so what? So then all we did is we looked at all our policies and so then we changed the uniform policy to say, if you have hair that touches your your shoulders or it hangs in your face, you have to move it out of your face and tie it up to get it so that you can learn properly. And so now you will have seen Half my boys have long hair. Some of my girls have short hair. Doesn't nobody notices because it's just it's just acceptable. And so a lot of it then, when you've sort of got to the next challenge, the next challenge, and the next challenge, it's about communicating and communicating and communicating over and over again. And you still don't get it right. I mean, this week I've been accused of the fact that I, that I've got lots of bullies in my school by three different families. And um, and when I go and investigate the three incidences, I find out that it's actually, in every case, 
a child being unkind on the playground and one child being unkind on the playground to another child once or even twice is not bullying. And so in this next newsletter on Tuesday, I'm doing a whole rant about, do you know what bullying is? Please make sure that you know what it is. Don't use that emotive word because it really is a terrible word. And, and actually it means so much. If you accuse a child of being a bully, that's really quite a harsh thing to do. And so I have to communicate those kinds of things on Facebook. On Facebook particularly, um, we try to um, ch challenge gender stereotypes. So if you follow our Facebook pa page, this last week I had a, one of my pregnant, um, my staff members who's just had a baby, is um, uh, there's two pictures of her teaching in her classroom with a baby hanging on her front in a papoose. And, um, and so we purposefully photograph those kinds of gender stereotypical or um, the worldly-wise changing things because why shouldn't a staff member who has a calm, quiet baby who's sleeping in front of her, why shouldn't she be teaching with a baby on her? Um, it's, 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 it's amazing to hear how the, how you, how with your values, you allow your, your school's community to evolve from its starting point. It's almost unrecognizable now. And there is the, there's inevitably the pushback and the frictions. And I know we've discussed that before when a big change comes through. Do you, do you find that you work with your community to, review the values or to or to discuss the values or to discuss the changes that you make to the school in relation to those values and just and does that support and assist you in the conversations and the difficult conversations you might have with your community um so every three years when we have a new governing body elected um we um review our vision and our mission and um and in fact what's interesting is that in 1998 we created both of those and all we've done since 1998 is maybe we added healthy. Um, we added, um, originally we said the school, we wanted to be a school that everyone looked up to. Um, but now we've changed it to be a, a, be a bit kinder about, <laughs> about being a leading school, showing, showing the way kind of thing. Um, and so that's interesting that since 1998, the whole school communities had the same vision for the school. But I must say I am quite autocratic about the changes that I make because because my governing body sends me overseas every year, every second year, I'm exposed to lots of world-class education. And so when I go on a research-finding trip like that, like the last one, I last year I went to Reggio Emilia, when I come back, I don't go to the parents and say, do you think we should do this? I just implement it if I think that it's right for the community. And then, as you say, I mean, I do still get pushback on that. But I, I believe that I also would obviously get pushback from the education department at times too. But um, I was once told, don't, um, don't ask for permission for things, rather ask for forgiveness afterwards with an answer about why you did it that way. And so that's been my premise the whole way. Um, and so I, if I believe strongly and I've researched the pros and cons to do it and it's possible with little money because that's the other thing in in South Africa we don't have lots of money to spend so in most cases it's just it literally is done through community help um and so if we can do that and make changes that it work for the better for the children 
I don't, I didn't go and ask the parents, for instance. In fact, that's what they were irritated about, that I didn't come to them and say, do you think we should have all our children together in a big venue? Because they would have straight away said no. But they don't know what I know and, um, and, and what our staff know. So a lot of the time it does create more challenges afterwards, but um, I still believe that the children should come first. Um, and so we must do what's right for the children. That's great. You, you just you've mentioned a couple of you've mentioned a couple of things there, which um, you know I I would interpret as really strong leadership and really good really good leadership, but certainly in a school sense, um, from my experience anyway. And uh, and I I totally hear you about that level of kind of autocracy, if you like, um, that you need because as the principal, you sit in between the communities, right, at the centre of all of them. So that understanding of what the children need is not necessarily the same understanding of what the parents might have. And and I think that's where the bravery comes in, um, that to be, I think, to be an effective leader, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but to be an effective leader of a school, you, you need to have that sense of or that level of bravery that you actually can stand by a decision that you take, even if it's a decision that you choose not to enter into a big consultation because not everything is consult is, is worth or, or, or should be consulted on because okay. you might end up with just never getting anyway. Yeah. And that sense of progress, and Andy mentioned it just now, and clearly the school has progressed hugely to the point where it was, you know, one of the contenders for world's best schools. Um, I think that there's no question that that comes down to very strong and effective school leadership. Um, that would be my opinion on it. But uh, but do you think there are any other factors that maybe have influenced that, uh, Anne? Um, I think it's also, so the, the thing that I'm um, dealing with at the moment is trust. Mm. Um, and so COVID had a huge effect on the world. We know that um, in in every community around the world. And so if I bring it down to my community, um, with our parents before that, and now we're trying to encourage them to come back. Before that, our parents were allowed to walk in and around the school all the time. Um, they were in and out and they were in classrooms. And if some parent complained about a teacher, I would say, come and sit in the classroom and watch the teacher teach, you know, be my guest. And so suddenly for two and a half years, no one was allowed inside. And so the, and the, the gates were barricaded and the, the children were put in, um, a silo section, including a toilet, and they couldn't even play with each other. We had breaks at different times. Um, the staff weren't allowed to be in the staff room together, so they all had to have separate little um, sections where they had tea and everything. Um, that really broke down lots of trust um, and, and community. And so this year particularly, we focused on building community again um, because the trust that we had isn't there anymore for everybody. Um, some people have kept the trust, but particularly those people who are angry with their environment. I don't know whether you experience that in, in places around where you are. You were talking about in the UK how people are angry. Um, people are angry within their own homes and with their own friends and with their own community and their own family. And so they lash out. And I keep telling the staff that people lash out at the people they feel safe at. So safe with. So um, we we are expecting, we are getting and expecting the lashing out all the time. And so we just have to, 
I'm, at the moment, our mantra is be kind always. And so we remind each other every single day when a parent sends an email that says, you did this and you did that and you shouted and my child and my child says that you did this and listen to him. I then just say to the staff, remember, everyone has their own reality at the moment. They don't know what our school reality is completely anymore. So this year, what we're doing is we have something we call School in Action Day. And on that day, we used to have a whole school community one. This year, we're making it grade by grade. So every single grade invites all the parents of their grade to come and spend the day with them to see school in action. And that's the most perfect solution because then parents come and sit in the desk with the child. They see how the child sees the school, see how the child learns in maths, sees how they go to phys ed and music and drama and all that kind of stuff. And then trust is built little by little. So so this year we're going to have two full weeks of parents at school every single day. But I'm hoping that I'm going to obviously make sure that I'm very present in all those things. I'm chatting to families, encouraging them to be part of it, the whole thing again, because we, we need to focus on building that trust again. So powerful. I mean, what you, what you say is just so powerful. Like the whole, it, it comes down to values again, doesn't it? So that, that building those trust, uh, those trust links comes down to a set of values that everybody, it's a common point for everybody to focus their attentions around. Yeah. Because we've really found that, that if a parent doesn't trust that you are going to do the very best thing for their child, then everything hinges on that. And so that's when we're finding that my child is being bullied. If they knew that we do narrative therapy and that we do conflict management and, and that when they, when they are in an argument, they can come and sit with me and have a conversation about solving that and no one's blamed for being um, victimizing somebody or whatever, if they understood that, then straight away where they would say, they'd email me and say, oh, Anne, I hear my son came to you today. Thanks so much for sorting out the problem. It's a sad, it's a sad um, impact of COVID and the closures and the, the very slow reopenings that the the transparency that you obviously had before COVID and that's built up so much of the trust and even it returns to the, the areas of the school that we spoke about before that parents are able to come into and, and enjoy the learning with students. The absence of that can have a really unfortunate effect beforehand. Um, do you think... Do you get a sense that with re the reopening of the school that that trust isn't being built back up and and that the the, the concerns that parents have are, are, are diminishing? Or is there a longer-term impact from the COVID closures that means that, um, that these difficulties will persist? Well, I met with my governing body chair today and she is a parent of this grade 7 group. And she, you know, I actually, I had a conversation with her about my evaluation this year. And I said, you know, we do a system out of four. So I said, I've always given myself a four uh, out of four for communication with families. Um, and now I'm actually beginning to think that I should get a two or three this year um, because I've been um, told I'm a bully and that I don't um, ask for um, um, people to buy into my ideas and whatever. And she said to me, just remember that it's a handful of people out of a whole group of 70 families. And then you realize, actually, it's maybe 10 families out of 70 families in one particular grade. And, and that those 10 
as I said earlier, maybe they're going through those family things. I know certainly one family is going has got an older child who's um, changed gender. She isn't. She's in high school and she's changed gender to male, and she was at an all girls school. So that family was deal- is dealing with all that stuff. And now I'm coming along and saying, I want your other child to be learning in a space with 60 children. So I don't think it's going to be fixed this year. I've still got next year before I have to retire. So I'm hoping that by the time we get to the end of next year, I can pass on the school with the, 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 the community completely back together again. So many, so many uh, powerful messages uh, here, and um, that I, I think lots of people um, can learn from. Um, you know, from sort of values-based uh, systems to the 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 kind of child-centered approach that you've adopted, and flipping the whole thing on its head, and making sure that the school develops in a way that's most effective for children's learning. From their safe spaces that you can see all around the school, and barefoot, and all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, one of the things that really strikes me is um, is the sense of persistence that this has had to take, and resilience that no doubt uh, you've had to <laughs> you've had to uh, employ to make sure that things keep going. So, but just to round off, I think um, it might be a good place to ask if you could give us some key highlights of your leadership. Um, of the school of Pinelands North, uh, just sort of highlights over the years of, of real, real sort of landmark moments, if you like, that you've that you've noticed um, as the school has developed. Well, I think um, if I had to summarise my twenty six years, it's in, all been about inclusion, um, and um, it's about looking at the school. Um, as a microcosm of my perfect South African society. Um, So it would be changed in race and gender and culture and all those kinds of things. Um, But also giving children who were previously excluded um, an opportunity to learn. I mean, I, every day I, I see a different child learning differently. I mean, David, you and I are probably the same age. And so if we were in South African education at that time, I mean, I remember I was the goody two-shoes girl in class and I was always put alongside a boy who made a mess. And this boy never could write neatly. And it and would, I was a succession of boys, but Anne was kind of put there to manage him and make sure that he actually wrote down the heading and the date and all that kind of stuff and tidied up his desk underneath it all the time. And um, we were told to sit in a space and be there for the whole day in one space. Um, Boys and girls played separately. I mean, all those kinds of things that, that for me, that's why I have been on this mission to create a primary school that I would have loved to have been at that I believe that that we all um, should have the opportunity of, of going to. Um, and so even though it's been slow um, progress, um, I, you know, when I first joined the um, school, the governing body asked me how long I was going to stay, and I said, um, ah, about five years. And so that's, you know, 21 years later. Um, but there's no ways that... So when you appoint a principal, 
there's no way as a principal can put a stamp on a school in five years. I now know that because it's taken me 26 years of hard work every single day to get to this point. And we're still not finished. I mean, they, every day there's a new challenge that you can change something for. Um, when I was talking to some of, my, some of my staff about the questions that you had sent for me to look at, um, and I was saying to them, um, you know, what what would you say there? So the one says to me, um, um, in Afrikaans, Andy, the word, um, if something goes off, you say it's frot. So it's V-R-O-T, Okay. And so my staff said, remember that fish frot from the head down. <laughs> so so um, they said to me, you know, you, it, 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 it's actually you need to be there to be the front arrow or the back arrow that keeps all the other arrows going in the, in the same direction. Um, and so I think, I think that's what I've got. Right Thank now. you so much for that. And I, and, and just for, for the record for, for the podcast, um, just to be, to be aware that Hanlis North in 2022 was a top three school in the T4 world's best school prize for overcoming adversity. It's, it's an amazing cherry on the top of a cake of developments, this transformation that you've done, which has been extraordinary. It was a question that I had in the back of my mind that David and I have spoken about in terms of how long it takes to change culture. And I think the, the short answer that I'm getting from that is that it, it is a constantly evolving process, but it's certainly not something that takes just a few years and can be can be an absolute turnaround. I've, I've never believed in that. And uh, your story is really inspiring and it's you have created um, this vision that you developed and it's another question for for maybe another time in terms of where on earth you got that uh, that vision from yourself if you didn't have that in your own in your own personal experience of growing up in a school but um it's been a pleasure it's been an honor to find out about uh, about the school and about your your journey of the last 21 years so i just want to say thank you very much for uh for for your insights really thank you andy yes and uh and from my side and it's been a it's been an absolute pleasure to to have you on the podcast um i've certainly learned a lot from you uh, i'm sure andy has as well we've got lots to talk about afterwards um and i do hope that all who listen to the podcast or watch it um will will equally get a lot out of it thank you guys Thanks very Thank much, Anne. Much, Anne. We'll speak soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fuck, 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 fuck.